Joseph Rizzo. I'm 43. I've been in prison since I was 18. Uh, twice sentenced to death. And now living in uh, general population as of um, almost one year ago. That's that's pretty cool that you uh you got to go back to gen population. Yeah, I spent uh, maybe twenty two years on death row, and um, now I'm on population amongst uh, dozens and dozens of inmates, and it's nothing like the solitary life that I was used to for two decades, but um, nothing like the sort of youth and childhood that I had outside of prison, having never been arrested before until uh, a capital offense put me in prison forever. Right, with a first-time crime, first-time you're in prison for life type thing. Right. Uh, I never even got a ticket. I, I had my license. I was a kid who went after it when he turned 16, and I paid for driver's ed, and I went to a school in Waterbury, Connecticut, and uh, learned how to drive and had an Oldsmobile, and um, enjoyed about four years of, uh, or about two years, I'm sorry, um, on the road before I came to prison, and uh, haven't been behind the wheel since 1997. Wow. The year you were born. Yeah, 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is my um, 25th year in October. Um, I was born in 78, but in 1997 is when my freedom ended. And um, I took the life of a 13-year-old when I was 18. And I was sent to prison, and um, soon after, through some legal maneuvers of the state, I was sentenced to death and um, incarcerated in a maximum security prison. Uh, uh, in a nutshell, there's an appeal process, but um, I did win my first appeal in 2003. But in 2005, I was sentenced to death again and returned to uh, uh, be condemned uh, for uh, my crime with lethal injection um, until the state itself decided it no longer wanted to carry the death penalty and overturned that, I believe, in 2012. But it took me until 2018 to finally get off of death row and sentenced to life. And it wasn't until 2021 before I was released from a maximum security prison and um, placed in a facility called McDougal, where it's a general population and everyone is in a sort of communal setting, um, coming out to eat together and wrecking together. And, uh, having jobs and living with another inmate. Um, so it's a night and day, huge difference. Oh, I'd say so. Um, if you want, we can go into, like I said, your background with where you're born at and all that. And then 
I forgot. I have my questions out. Yeah, sure. I was uh, a Virginia baby. Uh, I was a second born. Uh, my mom lost a baby in between me and my brother. So I guess I was looked at as um, really a special child that, you know, um, survived the last miscarriage and brought the family back together, uh, which makes it a lot harder on me today to be the one that disappointed them by um, essentially throwing my life away for a curiosity that I got into when I was probably about 12. We had moved to Connecticut, um, and I gained a sister when we came here, and it became the three of us, the three kids. And um, I have a mother and a father that just didn't make it. Uh, I came to learn that my father fell out of love with my mother and decided to leave her, uh, not for another woman, but to get out of the responsibility of a family. He just didn't want that anymore. And uh, it really hurt me uh, because I just thought it was the greatest thing to have a dad in the house uh, to do things with. And then he left. And um, he barely wanted us on the weekends. He would take us on a Friday night and bring us back first thing Saturday morning when we were meant to stay the whole weekend. Uh, he just didn't want to spend time with us. Um, at least that's how it felt. Uh, but I loved him, and I still wanted to spend time with him as much as I could. But I was pretty much left alone with my mother, who worked nonstop to pretty much pay the bills and uh, support the house. We lived in a great big white house in uh, sort of the suburbs, really residential uh, area called Bunker Hill in Waterbury, Connecticut. And uh, my mother was never home. Now we were left to our own devices and there was babysitters in the beginning and then there just wasn't money for babysitters. Um, and although I didn't know it at the time, we went on welfare, uh, so we really didn't have the money to um, uh, sort of pay for supervision. Now, when you're a little baby, you go to daycare or something like that, but when you're 8, 10, 12, uh, you're just expected to have some kind of supervision at home when you get home from school, and we just didn't have that. I had a brother that was two and a half years older than me, and he was meant to be watching me and my sister, who was three years younger than me. So when I was 10, I mean, she was only seven, and my brother was 13, and he just took off. Uh, he just um, spent every moment he could out of the house, and that left me alone with my sister. And I came to depend on a VCR, uh, a new invention pretty much in the 80s. And it was uh, probably as exciting as the computer and the Internet is today to a kid um, 35 years ago. And my mother at the time took a part-time job while working for the city 
at a video store and it was in close proximity to the house. All her kids got free rentals because we were able to go in and say, you know, that's my mom. And she let us rent whatever we wanted. And um, I just gravitated towards horror movies. Uh, I just thought they were exciting and scary and forbidden and taboo and wrong. And it felt really good to watch them, to get scared and um, to get excited by them. Uh, Not sexually, but thrilled in a way that was a bit like a roller coaster where you know it's going to scare the hell out of you, but you, uh, you get on the ride anyway. And I found myself developing an appetite for the pretty extreme ones, not like Dracula, but more like Leatherface and um, Pinhead and uh, pretty gory ones like Jason. And they started babysitting me and entertaining me. And I would come home from school and I'd watch them and I'd set up two VCRs so that if I had to return a video, at least I can make a copy, because back then you can let two VCRs talk to each other and record a copy, and um wasn't as simple as downloading today, but it was uh, a way of acquiring a pretty big library of horror movies so that I can watch them whenever I wanted. Um. To stop you right there, you actually, you remind me of my mom, like, back with, uh, v- uh, like, VHS and stuff. She had a whole shelf with me growing up. There was probably, uh, I don't even know, if I say 500, I don't think that's exaggerating, but with, like, four oh. or five movies on each. And I remember my sister made the comment that we watched everything there, and my mom found us old horror movie it was something about people melting in chocolate (laughs) and it was really really (laughs) interesting and i don't think my sister ever made the comment that we watched everything the house my mom was fascinated with like recording movies all the time and like even today like with everything she's got like a big collection which i don't know if i've ever told you though my mom actually was a manager at a video store when i was growing up that's usually where i would go and like if she couldn't pick me up from school sometimes i might walk there or something and my sister actually worked at the one too in uh, Hamlin, and then my mom was out in Milton for a while until they shut down. Which it's kind of crazy how you have like a couple here and there, but it's like in bigger, bigger areas. But yeah, there ain't really many left. But yeah, I, me and Olivia was talking earlier too. Like you kind, you remind me of me as well as a kid because I had like a Freddy poster on my wall at like five, six years old. So you know, yeah, I. Know, I uh dressed like Freddy one year. I had the stupid plastic glove with the fish knives for mm-hmm. fingers and a melted face mask. Um, I went as Jason. Every every kid, I think, felt powerful putting on a Jason mask. There was just something uh, haunting about it. As much as I loved uh, Leatherface, I never dressed up like him. There was no such thing as a toy chainsaw. So you couldn't really emulate him, but the minute I turned 13 um, and I became sort of uh, eligible to work 
in a video store. Uh, I know that that's not legal, but for 13, you could be a clerk or you can be a um, stock boy or something. Mm-hmm. And so I went after that and I got a job myself and I started amassing this huge collection from buying what they used to call used videos or used tapes. And that's what a lot of families would have. If you didn't just have a black cassette in your house, then you had um, the videotape with like a cardboard sleeve that it fit into, almost like a sheath. And um, it collected the the movies uh, that had... You have one minute left. And um, I pretty much started amassing my own collection, my own little video store. Um, because my boss um, just had no discretion at all when it came to kids and would introduce me to horror and porn. And and it was, uh, it's disturbing today, but not back then. Mm-hmm. Back then it was like a drug. Yeah. It was exciting. Yeah, very, very understandable. Because like I said, it's kind of, like I said, all in the horror movies. I wasn't really introduced to porn at a young age, but, you know, yeah. which... You got a lot of sex scenes in horror movies, though, so it's still out there. A lot of inappropriate uh, sexuality. Yeah, there's a lot of gratuitous nudity in horror movies. Yeah. That's something that shocked me as a child. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the question I was asking you before our phone malfunctioned, um, do you think being exposed at such a young age, like obviously you had the trauma with your parents splitting and that created some emotional turmoil for you, and then being exposed to like the porn and the horror movies, do you think that really started your urges for that, or do you think you had those like inside before that? Well, I didn't believe that there were real murders in the world. Um, I didn't watch the news. I never heard of a true crime book. So when I saw these things on TV, I thought that they were entertainment not real fantasy, just like dragons. And it allowed me to sort of dream a bit of being in these situations where maybe I was the victim, maybe I was the aggressor, and I would go back and forth and just get excited by this sort of scenario in my head of what if I really tried it out What if I was really in a situation like this? And then I discovered true crime books in my basement. My mother had all of these, like, books from the 60s or 70s or something, including, like, the Manson murders and other serial killers, um, John Wayne Gacy. And and I found out that um, these movies are based on real stories, that Ed Gaines really existed. And um, there really was a Henry Lee Lucas who did all these macabre things to human bodies. And that just made me more excited to say, this is a reality. This is something you don't just have to pretend you can actually do. And I think I lived with that for many, many years, um, growing up with puberty and hormones and um, temper tantrums and uh, bullies that would be uh, making me feel small and helpless and weak. And I would have these revenge fantasies and I would want to 
sort of punish them for punishing me just for being small or ugly or small or um, maybe I was, um, I mean, I didn't know I was bisexual at the time, but there were certainly something about me that made me stand out as a shy kid or maybe um, not so masculine or something. And it made it uh, easy for uh, it made it easy for uh, someone to take advantage, and for easy for me to, um, I guess, fuel my fantasies by imagining their deaths. And that's what happened. I would watch movies and take ideas from them and um, the closest to reality is a scene from the early uh, Chainsaw Massacre where they kept putting a hammer in this old man's hand and they would bow a woman over his um, feet and he would drop the hammer down to smack her head and make her bleed and um, for them, it was to drink the blood from her head. But to me, it was a carpenter's tool who was being used on a human being. And I thought, we have those kind of things. We have these things right here in the house. And in, when I was 18, I got a hold of a sledgehammer. And I realized that Maybe I had the power to manifest my dreams, my twisted fantasies, and make it real. And a sledgehammer was exactly what I ended up using in 1997. So was that, so once you got like a sledgehammer, was that after you uh, served in the military and stuff when you got back? Or I did. High school was really tough. Um... And I needed direction. I had gone through a period of being molested in middle school, uh, middle school, freshman year and sophomore year of high school, and that just became like a supersized version of uh, bullying. Mm -hmm. And it made me even more a pathetic victim that um, really wanted to be stronger and wanted power. Um, reclaimed, and I thought the Marine Corps, when I graduated, would be the best way to sort of reset all of the clocks, to reset um, maybe my manhood, in a way, and be trained and molded and shaped into a, a, a maybe a real man or possibly a real killer. And uh, so I joined the Marines uh, straight out of high school, and um, it was a reality that I was not prepared for. I had too small of a body, uh, too weak of a mind, and the demands were overwhelming physically. Uh, I was a machine gunner, but... I'd never touched a gun in my life before. Guns did not fascinate me. I liked weapons. I liked knives. And, um, 
you know, things like that that you can use your hands with. And um, it started to fall apart. I started to fall apart. And um, it became obvious to the Marines that I didn't fit. And they were processing me to be discharged when I went out of my way to get marijuana from a hooker <laughs> to uh, just swallow it, fail a drug test, and be separated from the Marine Corps that fast with no no appeal, um, no grounds to uh, challenge it. You just zero tolerance for drugs. And I was um, kicked out. And um, I had about 10 days before I returned to Connecticut and um, trying to find my place back in the world. And everything was giving me a panic attack. And nothing was making sense like it was supposed to. Um, coming home and trying to be the same guy again and having all of this training that stripped me of the inhibitions to kill before um, were now given to me and I had this incredible power, this incredible sense of confidence. Um, of course, I was a coward in the victim that I chose. But when it happened only two weeks after the Marine Corps, um, it was a relief that I guess I never thought I'd experience. I guess I never thought I would know the feeling. There's one thing to have sex for the first time. There's one thing to do drugs for the first time, and there's that first high, and then the second high. And the same thing with sex, masturbation. It becomes addictive. But this was shocking, and this was real, and this scared me. But after I woke up the next day, I felt as if I could do it again. And maybe that was the worst part of it all because I had become a killer and I could do it again. Do you think like the uh, pressure of just like the Marines and stuff where you said you started like down spiraling, do you think that kind of played a part? Like when you got out, like that was just not to really get into the murder yet, but is that kind of, I guess in a way you, ease the pressure that you got from the Marines and stuff, so to speak? The Marine Corps wouldn't let me go. Um, that was the, strong, the hardest part. I had to convince them that I was unstable, and I did, and they were going to release me, but it would take months, and that's why I jumped the gun and got the marijuana and... Um, failed the urinalysis test that was regularly done, and I knew that it was going to happen, so I it's sort of like um, 
preparing to fail a test is what I did. And um, once I was released, it was this incredible freedom. And I had no idea what to do with myself. Nothing had prepared me to be out of school, out of the Marines, out of a job, and out of any real responsibility. I had no relationship. I had no children. Um, there was nothing I was obligated to do. And I guess I kind of spiraled into a, uh, a panic, a paranoid panic of, I don't really have a future. I don't really know what to do. And someone else might start setting goals, but I didn't. I think I got dark. Um, and I just pretty much um, reverted to that child that I was before the Marines that was fascinated by death and murder. And it started when I was driving down the street and I would see someone and it's, why am I thinking about pulling over and hurting somebody and where is this coming from? And I just don't know. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to look at it for sure. Like like you said, you're going back to your childhood of what you were interested in and stuff. So that's basically like been a big part. But I know like we've talked before and stuff like horror and stuff and true crime has been like a big part of my life. But I don't know. It's it you know it gets to you at times, but then again, you know, you just kind of it's hard. Like you said, it's hard to get out of it type thing too. Because there's a lot of darkness in the world, and it is hard to get out of it. I think everyone has a darkness. It just overtakes some people more than others. And, like, when you're dealt with, like, you know, being molested in your childhood, like, that's a turning point. That's a major turning Mm -hmm. point in your life. And then going into the Marines, and, like, I'm not saying the Marines are abusive or anything, but, you, like you said, you have to have a strong mindset and... You have to be prepared to go in there, and if you're any type of mentally ill, you may not be able to handle it as well as someone who isn't mentally ill. So that could really just be, like, triggering for a break of reality. Yeah, I agree. I feel like um, each, each little setback that I had as a kid... Um, Maybe, maybe create a world in my head that I can turn to and stay stable by all appearances, but inside be really, really broken and really scared and really confused and confounded by darkness and um, murder and bad. You have one minute left. And. Um, I think it all just came crashing down. I think my world that saved me for so many years just couldn't sustain me anymore. That's a very, that's a very, you know, deep, deep words and stuff that, like you say, just couldn't help you anymore on that. Um, I guess we'll wrap this up for now since you don't have very much longer. Um, but we'll, like I said, try to set something up like 
an email, like I said, about next Tuesday or something, try to set something up again for the late, later evening call. If that works okay. for you. Yeah, great. Um, well, take my direction from you. All right. Let's uh, have a good night, and we're going to go probably, what, hopefully watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Stay up for a little bit. All right. It was great talking to both of you, and I'm so glad you're both here. Oh, yeah. Thank you for using Securist. Goodbye. Okay, that was our first part of our interview with uh, Joseph Todd Rizzo. He goes by Joseph. You'll notice that in the title. But at the end, I don't want to sound stupid when I was talking about deep words that he <laughs> used, but it just, I would, it caught me off guard, but it, you know, it really had a deep meaning to it. And I kind of got speechless there to really, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, when something hits you like that, like it's so real and you can relate to it a lot. Like you have your own fantasy world that you live in. And then you hear him, he sounds like a normal decent person that just had some demons but his overcame and like you know he made a huge mistake but I do have to say one thing about him though he's went through a lot of programs through prison since he's been allowed to I feel like he's truly someone that's trying to rehabilitate himself. yeah he's not like our personal opinion he's not somebody that is if you let him out today I don't think he would go back to that way exactly like he knows he made a mistake it was just one of those things Plus, I know being 18, you're legally an adult, and people consider that a grown man, but he's, that, that's still a kid in my eyes. Like, when my kids turn 18, I'm not going to be like, oh, you're an adult, get out he, of here. He's still a child, and with him talking about, like, going in the Marines and everything, and then he got out, and there was nothing. He had no responsibility. There was nothing there. Like, no yeah. job, no nothing. Like, that would be scary. And he had nobody to tell him, like, hey, maybe you should set this as a goal. Maybe you should go to schooling for art or something cool like that like whatever you enjoy well it's let me think it's weird like not weird but it's interesting where he said that once he got out what did he do he resorted back to basically a time in his life that he you know what i mean like what he enjoyed growing up he resorted back to that so basically to me I don't know if that's the way he meant it, but to me, the way I took it was that, yeah, I'm 18 years old, but he comes out and he's like, resorts back to his victim's age, basically, in 13 years. You know right, I mean? like, I think, I think the mental maturity has a lot to do with it, but I also feel like being a young child, your parents being divorced, you feel like you have no control in that. Well, that was, molested, well, you have no control. That's what I'm saying. Like his love was in horror movies and stuff at a young age. So that, that was that yeah, that was his control at a young age. That's so it seems like his mind went back to that. His dreams and his fantasies, he was in control. Yes. And he felt powerful, like he said. He said, you know, taking back that power. That's a like, big thing. I mean, I've been sexually assaulted. I understand wanting to like get your revenge and wanting to have that power back because once that happens, you feel so small instead well, like of like with him saying he was trying to become a man and they're like doing yeah. marine and getting all that back. So like I sent him some questions and stuff. Like he basically answered in a sense without me asking him. <laughs> yeah. So which I know we had some different ones, but it's hard like I always try to game plan something, but you know, it just these types of things, you know it's hard to game plan for once you it. get rolling your But like I said, hopefully like everyone tries it up. So when this episode comes out, we'll set up for the other one, which will go more into the murder and everything, which should be about another 30-minute call from, from, uh, sorry, from him. And then the next one will be more of his life in prison, probably more details, like maybe stuff he's experienced in there. 
Because that would be scary to go on death row for his crime and him being that young. Get appealed and then get back to it. Well, and being <laughs> young and knowing what he's in there for. Yeah. So that, that would be scary for sure. But uh, we thank you all for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one. I really hope you enjoy this episode. You know, share it, you know, because I think this, he, like we said, he makes a lot of good points. Like I said, at the end, you know, I was kind of speechless, kind of fumbling for my words there, so I kind of sound like an idiot. But <laughs> um, I, I think this was a really good episode. I'm going to email him. I figured both of us will, talking about how good he done, because he was really nervous talking, because he's had chances to be, you know, interviewed by other people, and We've been talking to him for what? Well, I talked to him longer than you did. Yeah. About a, what, going on a year or so? Maybe? Probably so, yeah. Yeah, he, like, you know, he calls me Wolfman and stuff. <laughs> so, I think, I think after I left security, I think I was talking to him right before I left security. Yeah, so it'd be going on close to a year. I always talk about, you know, where I grow my, well, my hair and my beard out for most of a year, and so, like I said, he calls me Wolfman. Like, he'd done this more as a favor for us. Because, you know, we've actually talked to him, you know, like he calls, you know, here and there on the weekends when he can. And, you know, we're, I know people will take us the wrong way, but, you know, we're like basically a friend to him. And he's a friend, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he, he knows his crime's bad. You know, we're not for, you know, crime like that. But, you know, him as a person. It's someone you can relate to. It's somebody that had similar issues and similar hobbies growing up. And, like, it's literally one of those people, like, it could have been you, it could have been anybody. Like, what if you would have taken that path? Like I said, my parents got divorced at a young age, which I saw my dad on the weekends and stuff, and then my mom worked at a movie store. I was, but I, like I said, I was raised on horror movies. Like, it literally... You had a fascination. One, well, look what we're doing. We're doing a true crime podcast. Yeah. I'm still in it. Yeah. I just, I took it further than my mom did, but, like, that's, that's the way I took it from his... From his talking. Or his he's relatable and obviously he's intelligent. You guys can tell by the way he speaks and how deep he is and how self aware. Like, he's he just, thought about what he's done. Yes. He's, he's replayed his life and what everything he's went through to work on himself. Exactly. Like, I feel like he is one of those people. Like, I know prison, prison is not built to rehabilitate people. It, it really isn't. They have programs in there and they try to make it be, but. Let's just all be honest. We all know it really is not, but he really has tried. And like, you know, it, I don't know how to explain it. Like I literally, I could see either one of us in that situation. Not even us. I can. Anyone. I can always name a bunch of people in the same situation. Yeah. Like you have a rough life and you make some mistakes. Obviously that mistake was like a big mistake. Obviously, like, I don't want to downplay what he did, but I'm just saying, like, I think he really, he really knows right from wrong. He's sat in there 25 years and has had time to rehabilitate himself and go through anger management and, he, you know, do therapy and do all these programs that are meant to help you work on yourself. And he really has put forth tons of effort towards that. Like, he is one of the very few that tries to make a turnaround in prison. Yes. Um, before we end this episode, like I said, I hope y'all enjoy it. Like, you know, we've interviewed, you know, quite a few people. Uh, I know, you know, this, like I always like, uh, the Kathy Kleiner, the Ted victim, Ted Bunny's victims interview I've done with her. But like, you know, I, I think Joseph done a lot of insight 
and I think people could learn from this episode. Yeah. But uh, he wanted us, you know, for a favor from for us, well, from him to us. If you guys are interested in writing him, emailing him, I will, uh, for the link, I will share his uh, address. But you can also email him. It's on Securus. Yeah, you can message our page or I think or, comment, or comment in the group how to, and we can set you up. But like I said, he un, when you do the email, it is Todd Rizzo. Like I said, he goes by Joseph, though. He did have his name changed, but by the prison, he, it still has to go by Todd Rizzo for some reason. Yeah, so usually like when we write him, what is it, Joe? It's Joseph, then you put Todd or T or whatever is how he does it. I know, I forgot how he signs Yeah, it. I, yeah. I know it's Joseph it. T. Rizzo, I think. Yeah. Like I said, I'll leave uh, his address in the, uh, in the descriptions of this. If not, I'll, when we share it in the group, I'll leave it in there as well. Our so, Facebook page, just a reminder, Killers Crawl Space, just like the podcast, that's our name on all social media. Um, check the Facebook page. I'm going to put some pictures up and his information, and he wrote a little kind of like biography to me of stuff that he wanted people to know like to get people to write him like if you're interested this is his interest type thing so be on the lookout on the facebook page and uh, i believe that's it for this episode so like i said thank you all again for tuning in and we'll see you on the next one